0: This morning we're continuing on in our series called The Promised Land. Walking through the Old Testament book of Joshua. Depending on how long you've been in church, you might well know that The Promised Land was a physical land that God promised first to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, and ultimately to God's chosen people, the Israelites. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, and in many ways it became symbolic of God's love and his desire to thoroughly and overwhelmingly love and bless his people. As we've walked through the history of the Israelites, in the book of Exodus, God calls his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. You see a great distinction there of slavery into the promised land, into a place of oppression, into a place of great blessing. We're studying this Old Testament book because as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, we can learn from its examples. But also there's an incredible parallel between God calling his people out of physical slavery into a physical land and the idea in the New Testament that without Jesus Christ, we are indeed slaves, spiritual slaves to sin. And in Jesus Christ, we too have been freed and called to walk into something greater. We are called into the promised land. And as we walk through the book of Joshua, it is my hope that we will gain and grow a more full picture of what it means to walk into a New Testament promised land, that is to walk in fullness in Christ, that we would know who we are in Christ We'd understand the distinctions of being in Christ. Last week, we started the book of Joshua. And as we walked through the first chapter, we saw that Joshua, by the way, his name means Yahweh is salvation. It's incredibly important to keep that in mind through the whole book. That Joshua had a calling and alignment, and that led to his obedience. He had a calling because the Lord had specifically chosen him to replace Moses and to reaffirm the promise to enter the promised land. You'd remember from Joshua 1.3, every place the sole of your foot will tread upon you I've given to you, just as I promised to Moses. And yet God didn't just give him a calling, just didn't say, hey, come to me. The Lord gave him an alignment, gave him a mission, said, hey, stay with me. You find that later on in the text saying, be careful to do all I've commanded you. And this book of the law should not depart from your mouth. God calls him to himself and gives him a means of alignment that he could keep his way straight, that he could be fully aligned with God. And from that we see Joseph taking the steps at the end of chapter 1 to begin to prepare the people to enter into the promised land. Joshua chose obedience out of his calling and his alignment. So this morning, as we walk into Joshua 2, we're going to see Joshua take the next step. So turn there with me, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two spies, or sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho again, you'd remember from Numbers 13, Moses had sent 12 spies. Only Joshua and Caleb believed in God. But this time, these spies are not being sent as the first spies were. Because these two are not being sent publicly in a way to suggest, should we go, what will we find there? No, these spies are being sent and uh, we're going. Figure out what the best way for us to do this is. What is the situation in Jericho? We need a battle plan. For Jericho, we'll get there in the sixth chapter, would be the first major obstacle in taking the promised land. Jericho, some 750 feet below sea level, sat in an open valley. Many archaeologists think that it might be the earliest walled city with some of the highest walls in the ancient world, which is to say this. It would be quite an obstacle, so it would be a worthy task to desire intelligence about how to get into this place. And so it's not a move of doubt by Joshua, it's a move of belief that God had called them there. It's a wise decision for him to send out these spies. One of my seminary professors, Tom Constable, notes, the help of God does not preclude human action, but rather it presupposes it that to go and search it out isn't doubt. To go search it out is wise. Verse 1 continues, And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now as this story continues, we will find out that the house of Rahab was built into the city walls, thus making it an ideal location for scouting out the city. But far more than that, Far more than it being a strategic location, it's the location they pursue because God had an eternal purpose in calling them to her house. For God had a plan. And it was a plan big enough even for the most morally bankrupt. And we'll see that in this text. And you should know, lest you challenge the moralities of these spies... That culturally, staying at her house would be more like staying in a motel or a hotel than staying at a brothel. It wouldn't have been an unusual thing for someone to do, lest we read our context into the scriptures. The language text of the text seems to suggest these spies were completely innocent throughout. Verse 2 picks up, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for you have come to search out all the land. What this points out to us is these two men who were sent secretly are actually terrible spies. For everyone knew who they were, everyone knew what they were doing, and everyone was in on what they were up to. Verse 4 continues, The woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Is that true? And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. And I did not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Is that true? But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of the flax, and she had laid in order that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Rahab hides these two spies and lies about it. We at least have to acknowledge this part of the passage, for does this part of the passage condone lying? Does it support it? Does it seem to suggest that if all else goes wrong, if you're pressed into a situation, lying is a good recourse? Is that what this text suggests? and I'm going to tell you no. Now, we need to remember this is a narrative. This is a story telling you what happened, not instructing you what to do. For example, nobody reading this text is going to go, I should be a prostitute. For Rahab was a prostitute. Therefore, prostitution is clearly a great profession. Now, we would learn from this that What the Bible is actually telling you is what happened. It's not telling you what you should do in the midst of this narrative. John Calvin, in his commentary, wrote this. It's Calvinist. It's a heavy word. It's written in Old English, but I'll read it as well I can. As to the falsehood, we must admit that though it was done for a good purpose, it was not free from fault. For those who hold what is called a dutiful lie to be altogether excusable, These do not sufficiently consider how precious truth is in the sight of God. Therefore, although our purpose be to assist our brethren to consult for their safety and relieve them, it can never be lawful to lie, because that cannot be right, which is contrary to the nature of God, and God is truth. Still, the act of Rahab is not devoid of the praise of virtue, although it was not spotlessly pure. For it often happens that while the saints study to hold the right path, they deviate into circuitous courses. On the whole, it was the will of God that the spies should be delivered, but he did not approve of saving their life by falsehood. i allow Calvin to do the heavy work for me, but to say this. He points to the sovereignty of God and not to the lie as the reason they're spared. It's part of the story, but it wasn't... wasn't part of their saving, which is to say that God was at work here, and even Rahab's lie was not going to thwart God's plan, because God had a purpose, and he was going to carry it out with or without her. She happens to lie, and God still works through it, which is to say the Bible does not support lying remotely. God is a God of truth. And God will work his way either way. But I do think that one of the messages for us to glean from this is to be patient with those people who have a young faith. To be patient with those who have not been taught differently. Because Rahab have had faith, but little exposure to the faithful. You know, it's interesting in a church realm, we have these expectations that everyone grew up as we did, and it's not always true. I'll always be reminded of a time in years ago when I was in Nepal on a mission trip. We were hiking through these villages trying to forerun the gospel uh, there's an office there in Nepal where they keep a big map of all the places the gospel has gone into Nepal. It didn't get there until the 50s. We were into an area the gospel had never penetrated before, so we were passing out tracks and forerunning the gospel. We wandered into this village, and we met a man who professed Christ. He was the only Christian I met in the mountains in Nepal. This guy was so excited to meet another Christian, he immediately ran home. And you know what he did? He got drunk just as fast as he could out of just sheer excitement. Why? Because that's everyone, every part of his culture, that's how they celebrated. Nobody had ever sat down and said, you know, Christians don't get drunk. Nobody had ever pushed into him to push him beyond an elementary, weak, immature faith to grow him up. And I think that's what we find here in Rahab. She had faith, but little exposure to the faithful. So how is it I point to faith in Rahab? Well, easily. The New Testament does. The New Testament book author of the book of Hebrews writes this. By faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She's attributed with faith because she welcomed them. She welcomed them because she had faith. James, the brother of Jesus, also testifies to that, James two twenty five and 26, and in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now we do have to be careful to understand what the text here is saying. The body apart from the spirit is dead. What James is arguing for is that her reception of these men testifies to her faith. That it's the proof of her faith. Much like we discussed in our sanctification series, progressive sanctification serves as an affirmation of the truth of our justification. Now, normally, I would steer clear from so many big words in a sentence. But having literally just finished a series called The Big Words on this exact topic, I give myself some freedom. But I will still give it to you more simply. The fact that we're becoming more like Jesus, a good practical definition of sanctification... The fact that we're becoming more like Jesus over time gives testimony to us. It gives us assurance that we really, in fact, know him, that we really, in fact, belong to him. The fact that he's still at work in us testifies that we're his. And in this case, we see both faith and shortcomings in Rahab. Something without question that is present in all of us. Faith and shortcomings. Now please see this. For her faith is remembered. Her faith is put forth as exemplary. And her shortcomings are forgotten. Please don't ever make the mistake of thinking your shortcomings, your failures, and your sin are too much for him. The fact that the Bible consistently points to prostitutes is purposeful. Because it wants you to know the most morally bankrupt people of that time were saved. Jesus cared for them. Jesus pursued them. Jesus sought after them. It was an intentional move in scriptures and in Jesus that for all of us to see that God can and will save anyone. And there's no such thing as too far gone. There's no such thing as a sin too great. For there's a reason that we're completely justified by the blood of Jesus Christ and yet not completely sanctified. There's a reason why Jesus would save us in our entirety, not based on our works, but based based completely on our faith in Him and yet not in a moment, in a flick of a snap, turn us into perfect human beings. There's a reason why that happens. There's a reason why he unconditionally claims us. Why he unconditionally covers us. Why he completely loves us. And yet doesn't ask us to completely clean up ourselves before we come to him. Why? Because in our covering, in his claiming, in his love, he has a plan in our lives to move us closer and closer and closer and closer to his likeness. And it's not immediate. It takes time. You're not asked to clean up your life before you come to Christ. And yet, having believed in Jesus Christ, having been covered by Jesus Christ, having been called in to Jesus Christ, he lovingly parents us, grows us, and matures us. And the process doesn't stop until we arrive in his arms. Much like my nine-year-old. I can't expect Pierce to be perfect. He's a nine-year-old. He's going to make nine-year-old mistakes. He's going to make nine-year-old decisions. So my job as a dad is to love him, to stand with him. And when he makes a nine-year-old decision, like beating his sisters, throwing things at him, I expect sometimes. In fact, I often tell him, Pierce, I was a big brother long before you were. I'm going to understand every temptation you're ever going to walk in. I'm going to understand the challenges of having a little sister and what that does to your soul. And yet, we're going to grow up. For God supernaturally gives us little sisters to grow us up in Christ. Gives us big sisters too. Gives us big brothers. Gives us all sorts of people. But they're intended to grow us up in Christ that we would continue to become more mature and more mature, more mature, that we would progress and progress and progress until we reach his arms. Surely the New Testament affirms Rahab's faith, but we'll even see it in the book of Joshua. Let's keep pushing on into verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to to them on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and, let, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Let's pause for a second and acknowledge some things. First, she knows the name of the Lord. She knows his power. And consider this for a second. Before the Israelite army has even crossed the Jordan, she's ready to declare the conquest is over. Like she so thoroughly believes in this God and his power, his ability to be over all things that she's already given him everything. Verse 10. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction... And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. She looks at the works of God. She looks at who he is and what he has done. And Rahab, the prostitute, who's living in a land that is devoted to destruction, that's about to be conquered, confesses the one true God. She's heard of him. Romans 1, by the way, says this is true for everyone. That God has made himself known to everyone so that men are without excuse. Even in the Old Testament, this is forecasted. Exodus 9, in the giving of the seventh plague. I want you to pay attention to this for just a second. Exodus nine thirteen through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, you'll remember, God is speaking to Moses. Moses then goes to speak to Pharaoh. This is what God says to Moses. Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all of my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Pause. God is explaining himself to Pharaoh. I want you to know my power. I want you to know so that you will know who I am. Continues verse 15. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from this earth. God says, I could have judged you like that. But I'm giving you a chance. Do you know, by the way, in Exodus Exodus 12, it says that with the 600,000 men that left Israel or left Egypt, that there were a mixed multitude who went with them. Do you have any idea how many Egyptians went? I don't. The Bible calls it a multitude, which seems to suggest that there's a whole lot of people watching this go on. They're like, man, God of Israel, we're in. These people weren't slaves. They just saw God's power and said, this is, this is our God. They pushed back from idolatry. God says, I could have judged you, but I'm being patient with you. I'm showing myself to you. But verse 16 is the kicker. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, do you follow that? Pharaoh was raised up, not by the Egyptians, but by the one true God. In verse 16, so that his power could be on display so that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. Now this is Exodus. This is a time when people are walking around and taking horses and chariots. There was no internet, there was no Twitter, there was no way for this to spread wide, and yet somehow Rahab in Jericho has heard it all. She's heard the stories of the one true God, prostitute in Canaan. What God declares in Exodus through Moses to Pharaoh indeed comes true. His name is proclaimed in all the earth. We see that. Back to Joshua. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. 14, and the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours. Then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. The text says that they made a pact to save her and her family because of her faithfulness to them. Somewhat anecdotally, I want to point out to you the wording here of this pact. If you'll look at your Bible, if it's open, you can stare at the screen if you want. Where you see the word kindness or you see the word kindly, depends on the translation you're carrying. It's one of the two. Rahab initiates this word into the conversation, and she chooses an extraordinarily biblical word. It's translated here as the Hebrew word hesed, a word used 250 times in the Old Testament, a word that's almost always used of God's love for his people. She recognizes she's dealing with God in this moment. This word carries the idea of a covenant-keeping God making a pact with a covenant-breaking people. If you don't follow the covenantal language, that's God saying, I promise to be faithful and true to you, even though I know on the front end, you will not be remotely faithful and true to me. That's the covenant God makes with his people. That's the love that you see in God. You see it all the way through the book of Hosea, when God calls a man to be married to a prostitute, even though she's unfaithful. It's a great picture of the love of salvation. It's a great picture of the love that Jesus has for you. And it's a great glimpse of the faith that Rahab had that she knew the language of the God of Israel. Story continues, verse 16. She said to them, go into hills so the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go into your own way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you've made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house the father and mother, your brothers and all of your father's household, that if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath when you have made us swear. And the spies return back to Joshua. It's worth noting this scarlet cord is important. It's not a type, if you will, in Scripture, but it is important. It's reminiscent of Exodus 12, 21 through 23, when the angel of the Lord came and the final plague to kill the firstborn, you see in 21. Moses called on the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and strike you. Much like the blood of the lamb on the door frame, preserve the Israelites in the Exodus. This scarlet cord served to protect and saved Rahab and her family. We have that too. We have the blood of Jesus spilled at Calvary. That we're covered with when we've believed in Him. That the destroyer, the angel of the Lord who would come in judgment will pass over you if you were covered in His blood. It was true in Exodus with the blood of the Lamb. It was true with this scarlet cord in joshua true too and it will be true of all humanity if you're not covered with the blood of the lamb so why believing in jesus is so important it's why believing in jesus is so crucial and friends that's why this text in the old testament in the book of joshua is so enormous because it's a text about salvation in a book that's about judgment. Now, I don't know if you've read the whole book of Joshua, but we've got a whole lot of fun talks in front of us. You may or may not know this. And Joshua is one of the books that atheists run to to point out the nature of God. They want to say God is angry. They want to say God is mean. They want to paint us picture of God that most Christians can't defend. It's a good reason for us to spend time in this book because in the midst of this book, when God is calling his people to conquest, to literally enter into a land that is full of people. When they walk into Jericho and the walls all come crumbling down, it's a cute song we like to sing. Are we aware of the people who died in that? That God was holding right judgment against. Because as we walk into, the walls come tumbling down and people dying. And you walk into all the other cities of the conquest. And you have to deal with the fact is, is God a good judge? It's a great question. And what we're going to have to really deal with in this book, does God have the ability to judge? And friends, I hope you see it's consistently been true in the scriptures. There wasn't an Egyptian at the end of the 12th plague who didn't see that God would judge. There wasn't a man in this time of Noah who didn't understand that God had the right and the ability to judge. And there wasn't a person in Jericho who didn't understand that God would bring judgment. This story is so crucial because it shows us God saving those who would have faith, those who would know Him, those who would acknowledge Him, and it shows a distinction between those who would claim Him versus those who would rebel against Him. For if Rahab knew this story of God, surely there were others in Jericho, surely there were others who would want to turn. And yet we don't find that story. We'll have to point back to this text a lot as we move through the book of Joshua. Because we need to see salvation even in judgment. We need to see salvation that God offers himself even in a time of his wrath. That his grace is readily available. This text ends with the spies reporting back to Joshua in verse 24. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. They saw the walls, they saw the guards, they saw the gates. They knew it was the biggest fortified city. They come back totally believing in the Lord. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. They took God at his word and willing to step out. By the way, before I finish, there's one last story to tell you about Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute and the liar. Rahab, the woman who heard of the Lord and believed in him and was redeemed by him. Hebrews and James aren't the only New Testament books with her name in it. If you don't mind, this is a good one. Open your Bible to Matthew 1. In Matthew 1, you find a long genealogy. We're apt at times to skip through genealogies. Nobody wants in their devotional time to spend it. I get that. We all skip that chapter. But if you look at chapter 1, verse 5, you'll find an extraordinary sentence. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. You find Rahab goes on to marry a man named Salmon and become the father of a guy named Boaz, who marries a girl named Ruth. The end of this story, if you'll follow it out, is that Rahab, the prostitute and the liar, becomes Jesus' great, 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 She falls into the line of Jesus. That Jesus chooses willfully to put both Rahab and Ruth, by the way, into his lineage. It was good enough for Jesus. In the midst of this text of Joshua 2, she believed because she'd heard of the Lord. She believed and it was attributed to her righteousness. Friends, if you gathered with us and you think it's incidental that you would be here to hear about Jesus and you've never believed in him, today is a great day to believe in him. For it was not incidental when the spies showed up to Rahab and it's not incidental that you would be here. For Jesus calls all of those, all of us, to believe in him. For there is a day and a time coming when the judgment happens. And if you are not covered by the blood of the lamb, you will taste his wrath. And That's a biblical truth. But it doesn't have to be so. You can believe in him. You can trust in him. You can stop rebelling against him and turn to Jesus. And if you need to talk about that with anybody, there are lots of people here who'd love to talk about it with you. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Gracious Father, you are good. You're a good judge. Father, your word testifies that there's not one good, not even one. That includes everyone in this room. Father, there's no one in this room that's doing right, that's doing well, that's getting it perfectly. The text says we're all sinners. We don't stand here because we've moved beyond sin. No, we gather together as a group of people who've been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, who've been redeemed by Jesus, had our sins forgiven by Jesus. We gather to celebrate Jesus, the one in whom we might have life. Father, if there's anyone here who's not finding themselves in Christ, I pray that you would beckon on their heart and draw them to you. That they could believe in you. That they could find salvation in you. That they could find their hope in you. Father, remind us of Rahab to know that you can save anyone. doesn't matter how deep or dark their past is. God, you have a desire to save everyone. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for dying on the cross and claiming us and covering us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.